in uh, in one of the Peanuts comic strips. Charlie Brown is is uh, sitting uh, in his uh, beanbag chair in front of the television when his little sister Sally enters the room and says, I memorized the verse we are supposed to learn for Sunday. To which Charlie Brown asked, what verse? Sally thinks for a moment and then replies, I don't know. (laughs) Now you made me forget. Maybe it was something Moses said. Or maybe it is something from the book of re-evaluation. Of course, Sally meant the book of Revelation. But... In some ways, the book of re-evaluation is a good description of the book that we have been studying. For in some ways, as we will see this morning, it may cause us to re-evaluate just how serious we consider our walk with the Lord. When we finished with Revelation chapter 13 last week, the world looked pretty dismal and dark and depressing. If you remember, Satan and his Antichrist and the false prophet, the unholy trinity, all in cahoots together, seemed to have the upper hand during the tribulation period. They greatly deceived the people of the world. They cruelly persecuted countless numbers of Christians. And they religiously compelled all people to take the mark of the beast in devotion to the Antichrist or else. Or else. It was a terrible picture of the future. And if the story were to end there, we would think that the villains had won. That God had forgotten His promises and had forsaken His people. But thank God, the story does not end there as we will see in this next chapter. For through the doom and the gloom, the Apostle John is given a preview. A preview. A sneak peek of what happens at the end of the tribulation period when the hero, Jesus Christ, returns, shares his victory with his followers and renders judgment on those who have rejected him. So if you have your Bible... Turn to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, and we will start with verse 1. Can you see that on the the board? All right? Okay. Because if we need to turn lights off, we can do that. Okay. 
Revelation 14, verse 1, where the Apostle John tells us, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Let's stop there. In this preview of the end, okay? This preview of the end. John sees a vision of Jesus, the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, the hill where Jerusalem sits. The place where Jesus will plant his feet at his second coming, following the tribulation period. The hero has returned in victory. And he's not alone. For he stands with a group of faithful followers identified as the 144,000. Does that ring a bell? If you recall back in chapter 7, chapter 7, we were first introduced to this group of godly Jewish men comprised of 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. In total, they are a force of 144,000 strong. Men who are wholly devoted and obedient to the Lord. Faithful and courageous, and they would be tasked with preaching the gospel during the tribulation period. And this underscores what I have said to you on a few occasions. The tribulation period is primarily, primarily about the Jews. Bringing the Jews to Jesus, their true Messiah. While the Antichrist and the false prophet are spreading their terrible lies, these 144,000 Jewish evangelists will be spreading the truth until the very end. And here's something we don't want to overlook here. They started with 144,000. They went through a horrible period of unimaginable death and disaster. All of them were most likely on the Antichrist most wanted list. All of them. And yet, with God's protection... Not a single one was lost. They started with 144,000 and they finished with 144,000. So John has been given a sneak peek, like the movie trailer, a sneak peek where Jesus has returned in victory at the end of the tribulation period and is being welcomed by the 144,000 who are more than ready to go with him into his earthly kingdom. This is what John sees. But then his attention is drawn to some activity in heaven. And this is what he says, beginning with verse 2. And I heard 
a loud voice from heaven. Like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. And stop there. After seeing the Lord's victorious return to the earth and the gathering of the 144,000 around him, John hears a booming sound from heaven, like the sound of loud thunder. And as he continues to listen, the sound becomes something like the sound of harpists playing. And so it would appear that a party has broken out in heaven with praise music and a chorus. If you recall back in chapter 5, the 24 elders seated around the throne of God had harps. So maybe they decided to cut loose with some music, playing with a chorus, who are singing a new song. A song only the ones on earth can learn are the 144,000. Now, why is that? We're not told why. <laughs> we're, not, we're not told why. But the 144,000 will share a mission like no other, a mission of witnessing during the tribulation period. And so, this song could be their story. If you think about it, it is not uncommon to have a song that reminds you of something or someone. If you recall, when the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, they sang a new song on the other side. It was their song. A song they could relate to because it was a song of their personal redemption. So, these 144,000 apparently have their song. A song only they can learn. So after giving us a preview of Jesus standing on Mount Zion at his second coming and the celebration that ensues, we come to a section where in light of the Lord's certain victory at the end, Knowing what will happen. Knowing that good will ultimately triumph over evil. Several announcements are made by angels to the lost 
inhabitants of the earth. So let's pick up with verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and springs of water. In his vision, John tells us he saw an angel flying in mid-heaven. Beyond the reach of Satan and his demons who were cast down to the earth. Remember that? They've been cast down to the earth. And this angel appears to be making one last attempt to share the gospel. Giving one last invitation to come to Christ and to worship the one true God before the end. This gospel presentation is a last-ditch effort given to lost people by God to avoid His judgment. It's a call for a re-evaluation. It's a call to repentance. It's a plea to those riding on the fence, so to speak, to resist the pull of the Antichrist and to turn to God because he is the only one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs. Something only God could do. He's the only one who could do that. In essence, the angel is saying what the Apostle Paul has already explained in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, where he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was Creation testifies of the truth, and there is no excuse. People have a choice. They can worship the false Christ, the Antichrist, Satan's man who represents evil in the world, or they can worship the one true God. It's that black and white. And there is no middle ground. There is no riding the fence here. Now we come to verse 8, where John sees another angel. And he says, another angel, a second one, followed saying, 
fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. The second angel has a message. And the message is this. It's a done deal. Babylon has fallen. It's all coming down. In the Bible, Babylon is symbolic of the ungodly, worldly system set up against God. If you recall way back in Genesis, the people of Babel, remember the story, the people of Babel attempted to reach heaven on their own, apart, apart from God. And using that as our backdrop, Babylon represents man's attempt to attain glory for himself. Babylon represents the political, the economic, and the false religious system of the Antichrist that will intoxicate the whole world with its immorality. And the angel is saying, it's all coming down. So get out while you can. Get out before it's too late. That's what the tribulation period is all about, if you think about it. God does everything he can to turn people to himself. Now, there is more about Babylon and her judgment. But we will have to wait until we get to chapter 17. Okay? So for now, let's move on to this third announcement. Beginning with verse 9. And let me just, let me just say something really quick before we get into this one here. You know my preaching style is to take a a chapter, and work our way through it, right? Whatever's given to me, that's what I preach on, okay? Just keep that on that. So, so when we get this next section, this is, this is, this is what's presented. Verse 9. <clears throat> Crack my knuckles. <clears throat> Then another angel, a third one, followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. The third angel pronounces judgment 
on all those who fail to believe the gospel and refuse to enter into a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. In this passage, those who reject Jesus Christ are presented with some very hard truth. And it is this. With sin, with sin, comes the cup of God's anger and wrath. And you want no part of it. That might be the strongest warning in the Bible to those who reject Jesus Christ. The Savior, the Savior who already took the cup on our behalf. He already took the cup on our behalf. Jesus willingly drank the cup of God's anger and wrath when he went to the cross for us. But here... But here, for those who reject him, they have no choice. That cup will be forced on them to drink. Now, if you noticed in this passage, we can see there is a clear connection between worshiping the Antichrist and his image and receiving the mark of the beast. As I said to you last week, no one will casually or accidentally or innocently take the mark. Those who take it are intentionally pledging their allegiance and devotion to the Antichrist and to his government. And as a consequence, it would appear their fate is sealed. This passage also teaches... Several terrible truths about hell. In the Bible, there are over 150 references to hell. So no one can deny the existence of hell using the Bible. In fact, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Here, hell is described as a place where those who have rejected Christ will be tormented with fire and brimstone. This shows... That the suffering in hell is real. And that word tormented speaks to the reality of the ceaseless infliction of unbearable searing pain. As in being burned alive pain. A pain that is unrelenting never lessened and never diminished. 
we're told this torment will be in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That may mean either that the angels and the Lord will be present in their punishment in hell, which is an interesting, interesting idea, or that the punishment being cast into hell will be witnessed by the angels and the Lord, which seems to be, seems me more likely. The Greek word used here for presence literally means in the eye of God. In the eye of God. And it is used to describe how all things happen under his watch. We know the Lamb of God is the final judge. So the punishment will be under his eye. The eye of the one they rejected as Savior and Lord. John tells us the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. Those who reject Christ, those who worship the Antichrist and receive his mark, will endure this wrath for eternity. They will have all eternity in torment to regret their rejection of Jesus. Here, the fact of eternal torment, like it or not, like it or not, is plainly stated because forever and ever means forever and ever. That's what that means. Imagine the horror of knowing that you will never, never get any comfort or rest again. It is a place of no hope. Some like to think that the damnation of the wicked ultimately includes their annihilation. There are those who believe that. But the language here does not support that idea. Those who have chosen to reject Christ and follow the Antichrist will have all eternity to regret it. God is holy and just. And he does not damn people to this kind of judgment on a whim. People are damned because they reject the truth they hear even after repeated warnings and opportunities to repent. People are damned because they reject the Lord Jesus Christ. They reject His love, they reject His mercy, they reject His grace, and they reject His forgiveness. And that's why they are without excuse. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis wrote that in the end, there are only two kinds of people. Okay? Two kinds of people. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. Okay? Thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, Thy will be done. 
all that are in hell choose to be there by committing the unforgivable sin. They've rejected a relationship with God. And so they get what they asked for. They get what they asked for. If a person wants to live like there is no God, they are free to do so. They are free to do so. And they will have all eternity without him. These three warnings from these three angels are as serious as serious can be. But on the heels of these warnings, there comes a, a contrasting ray of hope and encouragement. Let's continue beginning with verse 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. This passage appears to be for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ during the tribulation period. Though some will be imprisoned, many will be killed, and others will go into hiding, all must persevere. For all can be assured that in the end, they will be eternally blessed and rewarded as their good deeds follow them. And just for clarification, our good deeds do not get us into heaven. But once in heaven, we will be rewarded for our good deeds. Do you see the difference? Now, before we move on, I want to take special notice of what is said here. Blessed are the dead in the Lord from now on. This is an interesting statement, maybe even kind of surprising. But it's so relevant for us, especially in light of Dave's recent passing. Here we have God's thoughts about those who die in a right relationship with Him. In the eyes of God, from His perspective... They are blessed. They are happy. They are satisfied. They are fulfilled. And they are content as they enter into God's perfect rest. In Christ, we pass from this life to an unimaginable indescribable life. An an everlasting life. A life that is abundantly blessed. Yes, we do experience sorrow 
and grief with Dave's passing. But that sorrow and grief is mixed with hope. And that hope enables us to carry on. So after these three warnings, and after the encouragement given to the believers to persevere, it's time for a preview of the final reaping. So let's continue beginning with verse 14. There's a lot here. And this is, the, this is the Apostle John talking. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel... came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters From the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. And blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. The Battle Hymn of the Republic was written by Julia Ward Howe in 1861. And it reads like this. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosened the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never sound retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before the judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. I suspect that most who sing this hymn do not know that she took inspiration partly from this this chapter of, of Revelation 14. A passage that appears to speak about the future reaping of the unrepentant people of the earth at the end. Now, I will admit, I struggled to understand this passage. At least the first portion of it. As I could not tell if the first portion 
identified as the harvest of the earth, okay, was a reaping of the righteous or the unrighteous. But after a lot of study, and honestly, with a lot of waffling back and forth, and I'll be the first to admit, I could still be wrong. Wrong. I said, that's a hard word to say. Wrong. I could be wrong. It seems to me that both pictures involve judgment of the unrighteous who have lived through the tribulation period and have not repented. If you noticed in the harvest of the earth, described like a reaping of a grain field using a sharp sickle, we're told the field is ripe. Do you see that up there? The field is ripe. But that word in the Greek actually means overripe, withered, and rotten. Okay? Overripe, withered, and rotten. God in His mercy has delayed judgment patiently waiting for people to repent, but now beyond the point of no return. Overripe. He says, enough is enough. And it's time to reap. Now the second portion of our passage is really, really clear. As the harvest of the grapes are thrown into what? The wine press of the wrath of God. Pretty clear. So in these two pictures, the grain harvest shows God's judgment as being sudden and swift. Like swinging a sickle. Just like the upcoming bowl judgments will be. They are swift and sudden. While the grape harvest depicts judgment that is severe and crushing, a description of the bloody battle of Armageddon. The war to end all wars. And we will talk about the bold judgments and the battle of Armageddon later in our study. So, at the end of Revelation chapter 13, 13, it seemed like Satan and his Antichrist and the false prophet had the upper hand. But this sneak peek of the end given to us in Revelation chapter 14 reveals who ultimately wins in the end. I entitled this message the book of re-evaluation. As it was my hope that the contents of this chapter would prompt each of us to re-evaluate just how serious we consider our walk with the Lord. Jesus said, not me, Jesus said this, hear me, he who is not with me is against me. Jesus said that. 
he who is not with me is against me. That's a serious statement by Jesus. And from his point of view, there is no middle ground for us to take. No middle ground. There is no riding the fence. We need to be serious about our relationship with God. Stop the church games. No playing church. Okay? No playing church. We need to be serious about our relationship with God. For as we read this morning, it is literally a matter of life and death. Or more accurately, eternal life or eternal damnation. That's serious, isn't it? That's serious. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I thank you for this, this hard, serious word. In some respects, it's like a, a slap in the face. It's like cold water. Father, I do pray that we would reevaluate our relationship with you. Are we just playing games? Do we just play church? Lord, I fear that it, that some cases we, we come here, we put on our smiling faces. But once we step out the door, We live like there is no God. I fear that we live like you just don't matter in our lives. Father, forgive us. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are the Lord God Almighty. And you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our devotion. And you are worthy of our obedience. Father, give us a passion for you and the things of God. Help us to walk with you. Give us a zeal for you. May you be honored and glorified in our lives, in this church. Help us to be the kind of people you really want us to be. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Dave's passing really drives home the point that not a single one of us here, not a single one of you, not a one, is guaranteed a tomorrow. Am I right? Right? Oh, if I was a betting man? If I was a betting man, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I'll be here tomorrow. I could be absolutely wrong. Oh, I have my plans. 
I plan to be here on Saturday to, to do a celebration of life. That's in my, that's in my plans, right? But I'm not guaranteed to make it down that winding road back home today. That is the truth. And for me, eternal life could start tomorrow. Am I right? We need to be serious about our walk with the Lord. I've said to you on many occasions, sometimes I just, I just feel we just go through the motions, right? We just go through the motions. Yeah, I've got to be at church on Sunday. That's what, that's what I'm supposed to do, right? That's all. Got to put on a smile on Sunday morning. Look like I love you. I really care. Oh, here's my hugs. Right? Right? Just going through the motions. But what's going on here? What's going on here? I feel, I, I fear that some, you know, they said the magic words said their magic prayer and their life has not changed a single bit and they still live like God does not matter. Jesus said, not me, Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. He said that, not me. Tough words words so as we sing our songs this morning <clears throat> reevaluate take stock do an inventory where do I stand I know he loves me do I love him I just playing games? And this passage wasn't, I didn't, you know, I, I, I didn't mean to, I didn't want to, I don't want to scare anybody into heaven, you know, give you the hellfire brimstone. That's, you know, that's, that's not, you know, that's not what I, that's just not what I do. It's in the Word of God, though. Can't dismiss it. Can't take it out. Heaven is real, and so is hell. Hell is real. I don't want to go there. I want no part of it. I want no part of it at all. So this morning, reevaluate. I'm not trying to cause any doubts. About your salvation. That's not. I don't want. To, I don't want you to do that. I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to do that. But you know, if you're playing games or not, you know, you know. So just to reevaluate your relationship with the Lord, and if you realize you don't know Him, I would love to talk to you about Him, because He loves you more than you ever know. And he gives us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, warning after warning after warning, over and over and over again, to bring us, to draw us into himself. If you want to know him, I'd love to talk to you about him. There's something else going on. Need somebody to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. If you're looking for a church home, we'd love to have you here as well. However the Lord moves you, I just pray you be obedient to him and respond. Thank you. Uh, let me uh, let me close us in, in prayer. Uh, I'll pray for our offering. Just remind you, our offering baskets are back there in the door, and then I'll also pray for our fellowship.
Father, I thank you for this time together with uh, my brothers and sisters. And uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd, uh, you'd bless this time where we give back a small portion of what you have given to us. Father, bless uh, the gift. Bless the giver. Uh, Father, I know you, you, uh, you, you desire a cheerful giver, Father, so help us to give from our heart cheerfully. And Lord, help us as a church to use your money uh, wisely. Uh, Father, for our fellowship uh, afterwards, Lord, I pray it would be sweet. Do you just bless this time uh, together with one another? Father, bless the food to our bodies. Bless those who prepared and brought food. And Lord God, I just pray it would just be a, a great time together. May you be honored and glorified. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.